You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. From the death of Gabby Petito in August to the kidnapped missionaries in Haiti yesterday, from the political divisiveness of our own country over anything from vaccines to the national budget to the supply chain shortages to the ever-increasing inflation of our country, there is so much going on. There are so many topics to consider. There's so much tonight that we could talk about in light of everything I've just said and more. And yet, we're going to do something very countercultural. We're not going to open our newspapers. We're going to open our Bibles. And we're going to do this because we believe that the news that's spoken of here has tremendous bearing and influence on the news that's spoken of out there. We do this not as an act of denial, but we do this as an exercise of a true desire for clarity, not from fellow humans like us, but from God who's created us, that we might hear from the divine one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's with that in mind, I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. As we continue our teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, we're in Matthew 20, thankful for two weeks ago, Pastor Chris, teaching through Psalm 139. I was able to be with you guys online during that time, as well as last week as well with Psalm 115 with Pastor David Gold. Thankful for these opportunities to have our minds be shaped by the Scriptures. Every part of the Scriptures we want to bring our minds under the authority of And tonight we return back to Matthew. We have what appears here tonight to be three different scenes. But as I hope you'll see for yourself in the coming minutes, these are actually all related. As Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of a lesson that we need to learn by way of compare and contrast. And I've titled tonight's message, Where is Jesus Leading and Who Wants Us to Follow? Where is Jesus leading and who wants us to follow? Would you please look with me at Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Matthew writes, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. The first thing that Matthew wants us to see here in our passage tonight is Jesus' plan for humiliation in verses 17 to 19. What Jesus is doing here in this text maybe comes abruptly for the listener here tonight. 
If you're not familiar with the book of Matthew, maybe this is your first time here and with us in the gospel of Matthew, or you may be new to the Bible overall. Matthew is the record, the eyewitness, physical, in-person record of one of the earliest followers of Jesus in his adult ministry. The man himself, Matthew, was a tax collector. He was at times despised and hated by his fellow Jews because he was basically a traitor to his people. He was under the employment for a time under the Roman occupying military force, collecting taxes from his fellow kinsmen, only to then give those tax money to the Romans, but yet keeping some for himself. So he was paying off the invading government while he at the same time was making money for himself off the backs of his people. But all that has changed since he met Jesus. He is now committed and involved in a totally different endeavor. He wants to follow Jesus of Nazareth, believing him to be the Son of God, with the desire that he might understand who Jesus is. And so, understanding this, he writes of this, and he gives us account of what Jesus is saying. Now, Jesus is on a track here. He is moving from Jerusalem, excuse me, moving to Jerusalem from where he was before. And this is indeed where he is at and where he is headed with his understanding and responsibility. We can see what he says here. This is not his first time he makes such a prediction. In fact, for those of you who have been with us through all of the chapters of Matthew, let me get you just to turn back to Matthew chapter 16. Look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Just a few chapters of four. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now jump ahead to chapter 17, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And now we hear again tonight in our text, Matthew 20, verse 17 and following, where he gives a similar type description, where he lays out for them what is that understanding. But he gives some detail to this one he has not given before. He speaks about the Son of Man being delivered up. Now, to those of you who are not familiar with the Bible, the Son of Man was Jesus' most common term that he used to refer to himself. Jesus was referring to himself when he described himself as a son of man. Why? Because this was a statement that comes back to Daniel, where Daniel is making a prophecy of the ancient of days, God the Father, who will give to another who is only the rightful one to open up the scrolls of the future judgment. And he says, one like the son of man. That's indeed what it is. That is indeed who it is that he is supposed to be. And he sows himself and his deity to be like that. And that's exactly what we see here in the text as he keeps making that same reference. Jesus says he'll be delivered up to the high priests and the scribes. This is referring to a judicial condemnation of the Sanhedrin, the highest court of the Jews. Not only will Jesus appear before them, but he will be sentenced to death. The reason this is significant is because the Sanhedrin actually doesn't have any legal right to put anybody to death under military occupation by the Romans. They could have their own judicial proceedings. They could turn in their verdict, but it's up to the Romans to decide if they're going to enforce it or not. As we would say later, see later in Jesus' ministry, this is exactly what happens here. They would hand him over to the Romans, and they would hold Jesus to be guilty, and he would later be, as it says here, crucified. 
But notice exactly what it says in verse 19. Jesus gives this kind of detail. Now he talks about being delivered up to the Gentiles, no doubt referring to the Romans. And notice the three parts of what he's describing. They will mock him, they will flog him, and they will crucify him. This fits the practices of the day, this idea of mocking. This is no you know, prisoner union of, of rights here. There's no tradition that a prisoner should be treated humanely or kindly or respectfully. Instead, it was a great piece of bitterness that he would be suffering. He would also be flogged. Flogging was so significant in what he would endure and what he would go through that for some people, it itself would lead to their death because of how torturous and brutal it was. But instead, it would just be preparation for the crucifixion to come. And Jesus says, and they will crucify him leaving no doubt that he is facing the ultimate rejection by his own people, suffering at the hands of the Romans who ruled over them. And Matthew specifically tells us here that he prophesied he would be crucified. Now, for some of you, when you hear this text, you might be like, wow, how do we go from what was said in the previous verses, labors in the vineyard, to like Jesus on the talk. He's like, hey, how about Debbie Downer just showed up? How about negative Nancy with the crucifixion talk? Why is no one saying anything? Because if you notice in the text, there's like no comment about it. Well, let's go back just by way of memory to chapter 16. When this was first brought up to by Peter, from Jesus to Peter and the disciples, Peter says, no, Jesus, that's never going to happen. I will keep that from happening. To which Jesus shockingly but sternly says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Later on, it says in chapter 17, when he brings it up again, it doesn't give any of their specific responses. It just simply says they were greatly distressed. They're distressed because this is not their idea of how kings rule. This is not the idea of a future that they're hoping for and planning for. They have great hopes and ambitions, and this is certainly not it. In fact, those hopes and ambitions become quite evident and the verses to follow. But Jesus adds more here as he speaks not only of his mocking, his flogging, and his crucifixion. Notice what he says at the very end of verse 19. And he will be raised on the third day. Jesus has spoken of what will be grievous, but now he talks about what will eventually be glorious. As he has done before, he has gone on to predict his resurrection. This will take place on the third day. Day. This goes back to what he says in Matthew chapter 12. He spoke about like Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days, who will be raised again, that so will the Son of Man be raised up. Do you hear that? Do you envision this? Do you see the reality of what's happening here? I mean, this is significant. You can, you can try to feel the gravity of this conversation. Imagine if you were with a good friend you've been with for years. He says, hey, I want you to know I've been diagnosed with stage four cancer. But I want you to know, not only do I have cancer, but unlike other treatments, there's nothing I could do about that. There's no surgery left. There's no medicine to take. The doctors say it's throughout my entire body. So I want you to know that these final days we have together, this is it. In fact, depending on your schedule and my schedule, this might be the last time we even get a chance to talk in person. What would the next following minutes look like in that conversation? Man, how about the dolphins? Would you get into that conversation? 
Would you talk about what's coming up tomorrow at work? I mean, it would be a bit of a disjointed conversation, right? But even the announcement of cancer, which is something that no one can control, would seem wrong and tragic and sad, but not necessarily criminal or unjust. But now imagine somebody who's describing the amount of crucifixion and torture and punishment they're going to go through wrongly, unjustly at the hands of another. What are the first thoughts out of your mind? What are the first thoughts being said? Jesus is stating his humiliation of what will take place. Which takes us now to the second part that becomes tragic, seemingly even more tragic than what we've just read a few minutes ago. The disciples' plan for exaltation. Jesus gives the plan for his humiliation But the disciples have a plan for their exaltation. Look at verse 20. Then, this term, this transitional term that Matthew uses, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercising authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, what an unbelievable, insensitive, self-promoting transition of a conversation. Jesus has just got finished laying out the unjust activity that's about to take place upon him, none of which he has deserved, and then who shows up in the conversation? Salome shows up. She is the mother of James and John. She is presumably, as we see here and how she appears in the future with Mary, many historians believe her to be the, the, the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which makes her Jesus' aunt, which makes James and John his cousins on the mother's side. I say this because apparently she thinks she has some type of family kind of access to make a request. She is a first century helicopter parent. That's what you're seeing here in the text. Jesus has just got finished talking about he will be mocked, he will be tortured, he'll be crucified, and mom is like, can we talk about my sons? For those of you who are not familiar with helicopter parents, it's a term given to parents who pay extremely close attention to their kids' activities and schoolwork to not only protect them from pain and disappointment, but to help them succeed. They, they basically want to do it for them. They kind of live vicariously through their children. And it really stunts a child's growth and independence and adulthood 
what seems commendable in the beginning becomes concerning eventually because the mom and her dad is still just sort of like living through their children and kind of micromanage their life. But this isn't some mom who's overstepped her place. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, who gives the same account of this conversation, James and John are actually having the conversation like, well, wait a minute, is it James or John or the mom? It's both parties, and you can tell this because Jesus turns the conversation to them when he talks about, can you actually drink of my cup? And they actually answer. So he knows where this conversation is coming from. And I think what's just so shocking is, well, Jesus is talking about his humiliation. They're talking about their plans for their exaltation. I mean, how unbelievably insensitive is this? To be able to say, listen, I'm so sorry here it's going to happen, but while I may, if, if you can, could I call ahead and make reservations? Table for two. One on each side of you. That's where I'd like to have my son sit. Or James or John, that's where we'd like to be. And why? Because in kind of that old school, first century place of placement, to sit there would be the highest point of honor. That's what they're thinking about. Look at what Jesus says in verse 22. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? In the Old Testament, the cup is used for its association of suffering and sometimes of the wrath of God. All four gospel accounts use the term when they're recording what Jesus is saying of his sufferings in Gethsemane at the time of his arrest. It's clear that the term was often used for suffering. It's even what we talk about in the Lord's Supper about the cup being poured out. It is clear that the term was often used this way and they would understand it this way. They're like, sure, what do you got? We'll take the challenge but what's interesting is the response is they say, we can, without hesitation, without understanding, and without seeking any clarification of exactly what cup is involved. Whatever it takes to get exaltation, we'll get. We'll do. They obviously claim too much. It's proven later. Jesus is arrested. What happens to him? They're gone. They're gone. Can't find them. Totally abandoned. God in his grace, after his resurrection, restoring their relationship to him, they would go on to live for him, and they would drink from the cup. James would die by martyrdom, as we see in Acts chapter 12. John would die in exile, as we see him even in the writing of the book of Revelation. Let me bring this home to you and to me tonight. Why are you and I interested in Jesus? Some people are interested in Jesus because they think, honestly, he's just kind of like an old school hippie, anti-institutional, stick it to the man kind of guy. And that just kind of seems like, you know what? Right on, man. Some, because honestly, he just kind of seems like the older brother you never had. He's just a good example. Others, maybe like, just honestly, a spiritual advisor. You know, a Jewish rabbi, a teacher. Someone that you could rely on and depend on and, you know, have some good tips from. 
Others are like, no, 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 no. I, I, Jesus offers more and I want more. Because I've read the book. I've heard of heaven. I know about golden streets. I know about places where there are no more tears. I know about places where you can no longer get disease and you can no longer have suffering. But let me ask you a question. If you were to die and get to heaven and everything is there that you imagined and you've ever wanted, except one thing is missing, Jesus, would you still be happy? Would it still be heaven for you? See, the truth is, many of us, if we're honest, Jesus, by temptation, is a means to an end. Jesus, I'll give you my life if you give me a wife. Jesus, I'll give you my life if you give me health. Jesus, I'll give you my life if you give me peace. As long as I get these seemingly temporal benefits, I'm fine. See, what you're seeing here with the disciples is not just some far-off, 2,000-year-old story of some insensitive disciples who like maybe spoke wrongly or maybe used their, wrong, their mom wrongly, but are actually it's true in our hearts even today, here, tonight. The challenge can be for you and for me to ask the, ask the question, why am I interested in Jesus? What do I want from him? Friends, for those of you who are not clear, let me be very clear. There is no other way to be able to have your sin, your rebellion against God, your acts of treason against the holy God who's created you, who rules over your life and determines the days of your life. There's no other way to have that issue addressed, that problem, that wrath of God being poured out upon you than other than repentance and faith in Christ. He is much more than a moral example. He is a substitute. He is a savior of which there is no other. The scripture will go on to say that there's no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Friends, what we need most is to have peace with God from otherwise the wrath of God being poured out upon us and to recognize all we need is Jesus and all we should want is Jesus. And yet too often the temptation is to say, we want something more. In August of this year, the world watched in shock as the country of Afghanistan collapsed, seemingly almost overnight. I mean, it was just shocking. All of the amount of years that was there, all the amount of work that was done, all the amount of money that was spent, how, how did this take place? The Taliban runs the country now. The question has been asked by so many, how did we miss this? What, do we not, what did we not see? All kinds of governmental agencies are seeking to answer that question, how they've been looking at it all wrongly. Friends, that's exactly what's implied here in the text. If you look back at the text in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, Jesus says, you've been looking at it all wrongly. Look at verse 25. Speaking to all of his disciples, 
You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. See, here's what's happening in the scene. James and John are basically, they just get in line first. They basically are having a conversation that the other 10 wanted to have. When it says the other 10 were upset, they were upset because like, you guys are so selfish. How could you do that? They're actually all in the same thing together. You can tell because Jesus is like, get over here and let's have this conversation. All 12 of them he's going to have this conversation with. This entire time, all of his earthly ministry, right there in front of them, you think they would see it so clearly that they've been missing it entirely. Missing it right in front of them. And that's exactly what he is saying here. They think it's about ruling over people. It's about having authority, having positions of power. Jesus says in verse 26, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. What does this sound like? Go back to chapter 19, verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Chapter 20, verse 16, a few verses above. So the last will be first, and the first last. He's been saying it over and over and over, and they're still not listening. They're still not listening. Friend, are you listening tonight? Does Jesus have your attention yet? Are you still waiting for him to get over what he's talking about because you want to get to what you want to talk about, what you think is important? The world says that we are to be served. Jesus says, no, we are here to serve. Look at verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, this is what the Christian life is about. It's not about getting, it's about giving. It's not about having power over, it's about serving under. And in the words of Philippians chapter 2, it's about seeing others as more important than yourself. And there could be no greater example of this than Jesus Christ who lays down his life. And that's the very end of that section there, as it says in verse 20, and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment. Friends, do you realize the significance of that statement? Who is going to make payment for your debt? Who is going to deal with your divine record before God? Who is going to take a look at your bank statement and say, whoa, you have no chance of paying this off? No good works of all your family, no prayers of all your friends, no noble attempts of anything you've ever done will be able to make payment for what you've done against God, nor could anything I've done make payment for what I've done against God. There can be only one qualified payment maker, and that's Jesus Christ, who gives his life as a ransom for many. That's the significance here. Now, then this whole thing is illustrated. So Jesus is giving his plan for humiliation the disciples are, meanwhile, making their plan for their exaltation. That takes us now to this third part of this chapter, Jesus' demonstration of compassion. Jesus' demonstration of compassion. Look at it with me, verse 29 and following. 
And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. What Matthew is doing here is taking this account, which is a historical account that takes place next, and he's putting him here for us to see basically how Jesus acts out the very lesson he just taught. Now, just to get a, get a feel for this, so the destination is Jerusalem. That's where they're headed, but they go through Jericho. You maybe have heard about Jericho, what Jericho is like from the Old Testament. It is still an occupied town, though it had been sort of repopulated since the days of the Old Testament. And so Jesus has come through this town, and he's now exiting the town on his way to Jerusalem, and there's now a crowd. So we've gone from a private conversation with the disciples and presumably some women who are there with them as well. And now the crowd has formed. And the crowd has formed. And you have to understand, Jesus is a celebrity. So everybody who's interested in Jesus, not interested in Jesus because they want to be a disciple, they just want to see the guy. He's an impressive person. He can do what no one has ever done before. He can heal people. He can cast out demons. He can say things people have never heard said before. Trust me, you want to get tickets to the Jesus show. He gets a crowd every place he goes. Jericho's no different. Meanwhile, in this town, two blind men. What Matthew's doing here is he's really setting up two groups of people, the crowd and these two blind men. And it's worth noting about both of these groups because they're about to teach us a lesson in ways that we maybe would not expect at an initial reading of this passage tonight. Because here's what we see. The blind men could not see. And they owned that. They accepted that they needed help. And no one less than the Son of God, the Son of David, could save them. Notice how they cry out to that. You can see that there in verse 30. Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. This is a Davidic statement, a divine statement that, the, that whoever was the Son of David is God's Son. And they know what they need. They need mercy. And so they're crying out to them. And they want this help, and they, they cry out for mercy, and they cry out for twice for mercy. Meanwhile, the crowd is trying to silence them. Knock it off. Stop it. You're making a noise. You're making a mess. You're making a, a scene. Stop that. Here's what's so ironic. The blind could see what the crowd could not. The blind could see that this man was no mere Jewish rabbi. He was no mere Jewish celebrity. He was the son of David. He was the son of God. And he could do the miraculous with their eyes and with their life. And more often than not, the crowd would miss that entirely. They would as quickly accept Jesus as they would eventually dismiss Jesus. As we would later see in Jesus' ministry, it's the very crowd who's yelling out to crucify him. But these two blind men 
Though they cannot see, they have much to teach us. What is it that they need to teach us? First of all, they knew their need. The blind two men spoke of their desire. They wanted to be able to see. They knew that they could not fix that. No one else could fix that, but they believed that Jesus could. And it says there they kept crying out for mercy. You can see this in verse 32 when Jesus stops and says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, Lord, let our eyes be opened. So what does Jesus do? He has compassion. He has compassion. Pitting their loneliness in the dark, recognizing their lack of true enjoyment of life, the difficulty that they had experienced. So he touches their eyes and they are healed. And they immediately receive sight. Light enters where earlier darkness was only found. They can now see. Meanwhile, the crowd is still blind. They do not recognize the significance of who Jesus is. And look at what their response is to their healing. Verse 34, they recovered their sight and followed him. Friends, Matthew is intentionally using a term here that's simply not just a geographical geotagging as if wherever he goes, they go. This was a statement of discipleship. Anybody who says that they are a Christian is not telling the truth if they do not follow Jesus. I want to say that very clearly. Anybody who says that they are a Christian is not telling the truth if they do not follow Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus is what the Bible refers to as a disciple. Wherever Jesus goes, you go. Sometimes Jesus takes you to places that you're glad to go. Sometimes he takes you to places you're not glad to go, you're quite uncomfortable with. But wherever he leads is where you intend to follow. Here's the question. What if the crowd tries to keep you from doing so? What if the crowd treats you the same way the crowd treated those two blind men and tried to silence them? The crowd was unsuccessful in those two blind men's life. They could not be silenced. They were going to cry out to Jesus. And the question is, when the crowd of this world, the crowd of this culture cries out to get you to stop being so jealous, excuse me, so zealous for Jesus, so sincere in your devotion to the Lord, when the crowd says, quiet down now, when the crowd says, knock it off now, when the crowd says, stop taking Jesus so seriously now, stop being so disruptive now, will you be able to be silenced? Or will you do like these, like these two blind men and cry out and say, Lord, save me. Lord, heal me. And Lord, wherever you go, I will follow you. For I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. And I'll go wherever it leads me, walking by faith, not by sight. Their healing led to their following to be changed by the Savior is to be committed to following the Savior. The question for you tonight, friend, is what about you?
Are you spiritually blind? Would you ask the Lord to give you sight? Would you cry out to Jesus to change you? When the crowd tries to get you to be quiet and call you a fool, will you ignore them and call on the Son of God to forgive you, change you, and save you? Friend, if you do, in an instant, in an instant, you will be able to see. Light will shine into your soul. You will see the world like you have never seen it before. But you don't have to take my word for it. You can ask the Christians seated around you who are once blind but now can see, once deaf but can now hear, once dead but now have been made alive, and literally see everything in this world differently. Don't misunderstand me. That does not mean Christians do not go through hardship. It does not mean Christians do not go through sickness or challenges. That does not mean that Christians do not know what it's like to have tears streaming down their cheeks and pain as they deal with the reality of this broken world. That's not how God created it, but sin has ravaged it as we wait for Jesus' return. But they still yet know that a loving, wise, sovereign God sits on the throne. He promises to care for his people and always be with his people, to always provide for them and always love them, never neglect them or to deny them that they will always have an intercessor on their behalf in heaven, Jesus, the great high priest. And he has left them with the Spirit of God who raised Christ from the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them by the power of the Spirit. They can say no to those sinful temptations. They can have peace where others have anxiety. They can have rest where others feel turmoil. And they literally see everything differently. Everything. Politics, Economics, wallet, money, health, friendships, marriage, children, possessions, government, authority, nations, languages, people groups, racism, everything is changed. Everything changes. Literally, going from blind to like, I can now see what I could not see before. That's how God changes the life of someone who trusts in Christ. And the question for somebody sitting here tonight is would you? Would you trust in the Savior? Would you cry out to him and say, I cannot see, but I want to? Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you change me from within? Would you give me a new heart? that I might be healed? And would you rule over my life so that wherever you go, I go? You will be my God and we will be your people. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.